1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with Fred Lucas. He's the White House correspondent for the Daily Signal and co-host of the Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about whether or not Trump is clear on whether he believes Putin or U.S. intelligence on election meddling. He wrote a column for The Daily Signal written before the press conference earlier today. We'll find out what he thinks about uh, the president's clarification or at least effort at clarification in light of what was said during that uh, press conference with uh, President Vladimir Putin. We're also going to talk with Michelle Howe. She is the author of Navigating the Friendship Maze, the Search for Authentic Friendship. Not every acquaintance, every friendship Uh, is a healthy one. We're going to talk about the difference and how to cultivate those that are good for all concerned. First, taking a look at some of the uh, developing stories from the day and an exclusive interview with Fox News' uh, Sean Hannity, President Trump defended his controversial comments at his post-summit news conference with Vladimir Putin, saying special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation has driven a phony wedge between the United States and Russia. Hmm. Russian President uh, Vladimir Putin denied having dirt on President Trump. He called charges of Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential e- election utterly ridiculous in exclusive interviews with Fox News' Chris Wallace. If you have the opportunity to watch that interview, it's very telling. And also anti-Trump FBI lovebird Lisa Page was grilled by House Republican lawmakers for a second day behind closed doors on Monday. Alabama voters will decide a primary runoff election today between former Trump critic GOP Representative Martha Robbie and former Representative Bobby Bright, a Democrat turned Trump Republican. And uh, Showtime is denying accusations of stolen valor from uh, Sarah Palin and other critics who say satirist Sasha Baron Cohen posed as a disabled military veteran to trick them into his uh, new cable series. Well, first up, President Trump on Monday said the special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation has driven a wedge between the United States and Russia following that summit with the president of the country. Maybe we've uh, just knocked down that wedge, but it has driven a wedge. And President Putin said that Uh, Trump told Fox News Sean Hannity in an exclusive interview. One of the uh, early things he said when he started was it's really a shame because we could do so much good. This is a quote from Putin, apparently. And they drove a phony wedge. It's phony witch hunt, Rigged deal with guys like FBI agent Peter Strzok and the former FBI director James Comey and former FBI de- uh, deputy director Andrew McCabe. If you can imagine who else, it's a real shame. End quote. Well, Monday's summit took place three days after a grand jury indicted 12 Russian intelligence operatives on charges related to cyber attacks on Democratic organizations during the 2016 election campaign. At a news conference following that meeting, Putin offered to have Russian prosecutors question the indicted operatives and added that. Mueller's team of investigators could be present for questioning if U.S. officials would reciprocate. Trump told Hannity he was fascinated by Putin's suggestion, but then appeared to dismiss it, saying that the special counsel's team probably won't want to go. In a joint press conference today, uh, the president and uh, or rather on Monday, today's Tuesday, um, the two presidents touted the summit as a success, vowing to improve ties on a range of issues. President Trump ignited controversy when he appeared to undermine the U.S. intelligence community's findings that Russia did in- interfere with the 2016 elections and suggested he was willing to believe Putin's denials, or at least he acknowledged them. When asked which side is responsible for damaged relationship, the president said, I hold both countries responsible. The state. Statement drew bipartisan criticism back in Washington, and Putin claims no Russian interference, no um, uh, collusion with Donald Trump uh, in another interview in which he uh, was called upon to respond by Chris Wallace to a number of questions and an occasionally combative interview. The Fox News. Um, yep. A questioner called it utterly ridiculous that some people think the Russians could be have swayed millions of Americans vote American voters rather in the 2016 election while insisting his country did not have dirt on President Trump or his family. Interference with the domestic affairs of the United States. United States rather, do you really believe that someone acting from Russia's territory could have influenced the United States and influenced the choice of millions of Americans? Putin said this is utterly ridiculous and yet true. That was my editorial comment. And former FBI lawyer Lisa Page was questioned behind closed doors for a second day on Monday on Capitol Hill by GOP lawmakers about anti Trump texts she exchanged with colleague and former boyfriend peter struck page who first testified before lawmakers last friday after initially denying a congressional subpoena has reportedly been described cooperative and credible and more believable than Strzok. however some lawmakers have also pointed out that page has attempted to minimize her role in the special counsel robert Mueller's russian probe Mueller removed Strzok and page from the investigation uh, once their anti-trump messages surfaced In 2016, GOP Representative Martha Robbie said Donald Trump's comments about women made him an unacceptable choice for president. Now, with Trump in the White House, Robbie is at risk of losing her congressional seat. She, who was uh, first elected to Congress in 2010, faces a runoff election on Tuesday against former Representative Bobby Bright, a Democrat-turned-Trump-supporting Republican, who once held that very seat. In the June primary election, Robbie garnered the most votes but uh, could not secure enough to avoid a runoff runoff with Bright. Whoever wins the July 17th runoff will face Democrat Tabitha Eisner in the November general election. Despite her past criticism, the Trump White House has emerged as Robbie's most powerful backer. Trump himself endorsed Robbie on Twitter, calling her a reliable vote for our Make America Great Again agenda and bashing Bright as a recent Nancy Pelosi voting Democrat. The second congressional district encompasses much of the Montgomery and southeastern uh, portions of Alabama. Trump beat Democrat Hillary Clinton in Alabama with 62.9 percent of the vote, according uh, to stats. Well, Showtime is fighting stolen valor accusations from critics who claimed Sasha Baron Cohen posed as a veteran for the actor's controversial new series, Who is America? On Monday, the network released a statement explaining there has been widespread misinformation over the past week about Cohen's character, Billy Wayne Ruddick, Jr., Ph.D. Baron Cohen did not present himself as a disabled veteran, and viewers nationwide who watched the premiere on Sunday can now attest to that, the statement read. In Sunday's episode, during an interview with Senator Bernie Sanders, Baron Cohen in, uh, in character as Dr. Ruddick." was asked by the senator if he is disabled, and he stated that he is not and uses a mobility scooter to conserve his energy. The statement went on to say that Cohen never presented himself as a veteran of the U.S. military to former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin during the bookings uh, process or during the filming of her interview. There are two different versions of those events. And on this day in 1997... Woolworth Corporation, some of you have no idea what that was, but Woolworth Corporation, I remember it well, announced it was closing its 400 remaining five-and-dime stores across the country, ending 117 years of business. That was in 1997. In 1967, on this day, jazz composer-musician John Coltrane died in in Long Island, New York. He was 40. And in 1821, on this day, Spain cedes Florida to the United States. And for Americans who live there now, they're pretty thrilled that it happened. Up next, we're going to talk with Fred Lucas. He's White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of The Right Side of History podcast. His uh, column in The Daily Signal headline simply read, Trump not clear on whether he believes Putin or U.S. intelligence on election meddling. Well, since the press conference today, has that cleared things up? We'll talk about that and more when we return. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest in uh, authoring a column that appeared in The Daily Signal used the headline, Trump Not Clear, on whether he believes Putin or U.S. intelligence on election meddling. And he quotes the president, uh, who said, I have great confidence in my intelligence people, but I will tell you that President Putin was extremely strong and powerful in his denial today. He went on to say um, uh, he just said it's not Russia. Uh, I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. Well, there was a press conference earlier today. Here to talk with us about what happened yesterday and what's happened today is Fred Lucas. He is the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of The Right Side of History podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Oh, thanks for having me on.
2: Well, uh, first of all, let me ask you to comment on the president's press conference earlier today in which he clarified a, a misstep, uh, suggesting that the double negative of um, why it wouldn't be was the explanation for the line that has been the most controversial, although not the only controversial line from the uh, press conference.
3: Right, right, right. Yeah, and uh, some, some of the rage came from, uh, in both Republican and Democratic circles, uh, came, came from other things that he said during yesterday's press conference. Mm-hmm. But today, uh, he did seek to clarify that. And I, I think the, the the key line is that he 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 said today that what he meant to say uh, was that it he didn't see any reason that it wouldn't be Russia that meddled in the election, meaning that he believes the U.S. intelligence uh, agencies uh, that have said, and, and including his uh, director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, that has said that Russia. Starting to meddle in the uh, U.S. election in 2016 uh, through hacking the DNC Hillary campaign and so forth, and doing you know, various Facebook ads and and whatnot. Um, but he he did stress uh, that this had no impact on the election, which I think most people agree with that. Uh, and he also stressed that or no impact on the election outcome i should say uh and he also stressed that uh there was no collusion he repeated that uh and that's important i think and and i think maybe he's come to a um he has reached an important point on this because for yeah yesterday's press conference i think a big problem seemed to be that he was conflating uh Russian interference with this allegation that's uh, unproven with not much evidence as of yet that there was somehow collusion between his campaign and the Russian government. Uh, it seems pretty clear, pretty overwhelming here that Russia uh, and you know, their apparatus did interfere, uh, did do things that, they, that Americans should not want them to do with, with any American political party but it, it's also, there's very little, uh, it's pretty thin evidence to try to imply that somehow Trump's campaign was involved in that. Yeah,
2: there's yet to be any evidence to make that point. I think it's also important to point out that the media and the president's critics have been loath to uh, make a distinction between collusion and Russian interference. Right, and right, I right. right. Yeah, yeah. And reason-
3: I, 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 I think the president actually has sort of a, uh, fell into that himself in terms of Democrats don't, don't want to make that distinction. Yeah, and, and I think that's part of the president. reason that
2: he has been reluctant right. to, to do the same. Right. Well, let me ask you, one of the things that you write about is the, the fact that Russian President Vladimir Putin offered to allow special counsel Robert Mueller's team right. to come to Russia to observe questioning of the 12 Russians who were, in, who were named in that indictment, but with a condition. Um, what should we make of that offer and the condition that was uh, attached to it?
3: Well, I thought it was a very interesting, uh, offer that he made. He, he, he said that he said Mueller's team can come over here and, um, interrogate basically those 12 indicted Russian intel agents. Uh, but he threw out there that he wants to be able to have Russian law enforcement, um, arrest or, or, or perhaps not arrest, but come to the United States and question, uh, Bill Bowder, who um, Putin says stole money from uh, from Russia by not paying taxes, evaded taxes and so forth. Uh, There's another side of that. Bill Bowder, who actually wrote a book in 2015 about his experience with Russia, um, says that they use you know vicious police state tactics and went after his finance company in Russia, as which is why he had to flee and cease operations there. Uh, But that. That, that entire um, thing that Putin threw out there was just very interesting that, that he's giving, uh, making this offer out there for Mueller's team to come over and question these folks. Uh, and, and one reason it is interesting is that these 12 people who were indicted, and, and the same goes for um, the 13 that were indicted a few months ago uh, by Mueller's team, uh, those people are never going to stand trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it, it, it's almost a certainty. They're not going to stand trial. It's just sort of the indictment's almost like a press release to say this investigation is advancing and moving forward. So in some sense, I mean, one could argue that Mueller, Mueller should try to seek advantage of this. Now, I think there's a good case to be made that the U.S. should not open itself up to having maybe their intelligence. uh, Yeah, the investigators come.
2: You also point out in your column uh, that Putin may have overlooked the fact that Mr. Bowder uh, gave up his U.S. citizenship to live in Britain so he could avoid U.S. taxes as well. So it's sort of a moot point uh, with that regard. But you're right. If the United States were to open itself up for tit for tat when it comes to investigating charges that one nation would bring against citizens, um, of yeah, the and this, other. This goes uh, actually back to a 1999 <laughs> treaty in which uh, the US and Russia agreed
3: uh, not outright extraditions or not automatic extraditions, but there could be questioning and investigations between the two countries.
2: Now, again, your headline read Trump not clear on whether he believes Putin or U.S. intelligence on election meddling. This was written before the press conference earlier today. But do you think the president clarified um, that he does, in fact, have confidence in the U.S. intelligence and that this was simply a misstatement, uh, aside from all of the other things that one might question?
3: Well, he was uh, more clear today than yesterday, at least. Uh, And he did he did affirm his uh, confidence in u s intelligence who works for him after all um, that there was Russian meddling in this uh, he, he he did mention well a lot of other people could have meddled in the election as well that probably wasn't necessary and I, I, I imagine that some of the people who are wanting him to clarify this kind of wish he just left a period at the end of the sentence when he said uh, Russia clearly meddled but uh this this was a this, this is an improvement what he said yesterday. And, you know, he had a lot of his big supporters. Newt Gingrich uh, was out there, uh, Laura Ingram. We're, we're all saying he really needs to clean this up because yesterday was, was a bad problem. And, of course, his enemies who were out there, you know, John Brennan was out there saying this is high crimes and misdemeanors. He has to be impeached over this press conference, which seemed a little silly. But when you had a lot of his allies that were saying this is – this whole press conference was a problem. Um, I, I, I think he realized, and I think it's the people closest to him realized he needed to clear it up and clarify it. And I, I think that's a big step forward. Uh, some of the things he did say yesterday was he said both America and Russia acted foolishly, and that's why we have bad relations. Uh, I, I think that uh, that got under the skin of a lot of uh, a lot of Republicans, actually, who who were very upset when Barack Obama went around apologizing mm-hmm. to other world leaders. Uh, this was a case in which it sort of seemed like uh, Trump was putting uh, the U.S. on the same level as Russia, yeah, moral
2: sometimes equivalence.
3: Barack Obama would do.
2: Yeah. And the, the another interesting point is the media was never outraged when he applied that during his tenure as president over those eight right, years. Right,
3: right.
2: right, Well, I appreciate so much your talking with us today. And again, the, uh, the column that we're making reference to uh, raises the question of whether or not tr- the president was clear on whether he believed the, uh, the president of Russia or the U.S. intelligence on election meddling. And this press conference was designed to help uh, clarify that that point. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Fred Lucas is the White House correspondent for The Daily Signal and co-host of The Right Side of History uh, podcast. We're talking about the clarification earlier today by the president, at least in trying to explain the uh, verbal misstep on the double negative of attempting to say why wouldn't it be Russia. Now, many are questioning whether or not this is just an effort to uh, to uh, backpedal others, saying, well, you're going to grant him uh, – You know, but the the fact that he made a a, a verbal misstep in any case, um, that's what the president said. He intended to say that's what he meant. Uh, uh, He said he misspoke when he seemed to dismiss the allegations of Russian meddling. We're going to uh, continue uh, talking about this later in the 5 o'clock hour, so stay with us. But coming up, we're going to talk with Michelle Howe. She is the author of Navigating the Friendship Maze, The Search for Authentic Friendship. We're going to talk about those friendships that are nurturing and good for both people and those that can be damaging and how to tell the uh, the difference, when to say, well, I think this friendship has come to a close. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, my next guest says that there are three key ingredients that make for a happy life: their friendships, family, and a lasting marriage. Yet more people feel disconnected from close friendships today than in previous generations. People with the fewest friendship connections suffer from higher rates of depression, heart disease, and anxiety. That's why we're going to talk about navigating the friendship maze in the search for authentic friendship. In her new book by the same title, Michelle Howell, uh, she doesn't just talk about the health benefits of friendship. She explains the dynamics of good friends or toxic friends. We've probably all had the experience of one and the other. She suggests that every woman needs a mentor friend and that there are people who provide more than companionship. They offer guidance, perspective, and even admonition when needed. She also offers clear and precise definitions of friendship, noting that not everyone knows what it means to be a good friend. In the first part of the book she looks at the definitions the kinds of people who are either life giving or who suck the life out of us and this includes learning when to let a friendship go the red flags of toxic relationships and what it looks like uh, to be a true friend and in the second part of her book she clearly identifies the dynamic of good friendships well Michelle Howell is a uh, an author of 18 books and has published over 2500 articles and reviews on uh, parenting women's issues and the empty nest she has been on focus on the family and is Featured on CareLeader.org regularly, Um, her books include Caring for Young Aging Parents, Lessons in Love, Loss and Letting Go, and Empty Nest, What Next? Parenting Adult Children Without Losing Your Mind. Today, she joins us to talk about her latest, Navigating the Friendship Maze, The Search for Authentic Friendship. Thank you so much for joining us, Michelle Howell.
4: Hi, Georgine. It's nice to be here today.
2: You know, friendship and relationship seems like such a fundamental issue. It's really somewhat surprising that we really um, struggle in this area, and that friendship really does present something of a maze. Why do you think that's the case?
4: Well, you know, I think in today's world where everyone is so busy and we're so hooked into the Internet, you know, social media, you've got Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Snapchat, and all, uh, you know, a whole myriad of other things, the people get online and they think they're connected to others in a superficial way. I mean, they'll, they'll look at something on Facebook and they'll say, oh, I can see what my cousin's doing, you know, in California and I can see what my aunt's doing, you know, in uh, you know Oklahoma or wherever. And you think that you're, you've got a bead on what people are doing, but nothing replaces sitting across the table from a friend, sharing a meal, drinking a cup of coffee, looking into each other's eyes and really gauging where your friend is at, are they happy, are they sad, are they struggling? You can't replace face-to-face interactions with others. And yet, because we're so hectically busy, we think, well, I have friends. I have 500 friends on Facebook. Well, yes and no, maybe. Nobody probably has 500 friends. You have acquaintances. You have people who might recognize your name if you're in a certain business. But friendships, the kind we really want and need that are soul-enriching and life-enriching, are those that last the duration, you know, of of our lives. You know, some people do come in and out, but you want friends who are are with you for the good times and the bads.
2: Studies have shown that Americans are more socially isolated than previous generations. We live in in closer proximity to one another than perhaps previous generations did, and yet we're socially isolated from one another for reasons you've at least in part explained. But what do you make of this, this social isolation we find ourselves in? Well, I think that
4: we really kid ourselves that if we're active online, or even if we're emailing other people, that we're connected with them. And, you know, and I love my smartphone. I love the convenience. I love to be able to work wherever I'm at to text my kids, to text my husband and my friends real quick. But you know what? Again, we go back to you can't go deep in those kinds of conversations, or at least it's a lot harder. So we think, oh, I'm connected. I'm connected all the time. It's driving me crazy how overconnected I am. Well, I think what we have to do is to put the phones away, turn the computer off, turn the TV off, you know, and start sitting down with a real calendar in our hand and making phone calls to friends to set up times to actually meet with them, you know, to do ministry with them, to just be in their lives, visit each other in our homes. Because again, you can't do life with people over social media. You can give somebody a good word. You can encourage them with a Bible verse or tell them you're praying for them and then please do pray for them, but you can't really be there unless you're in that hospital room with someone who's suffering. If you're going to a wedding and celebrating with a family member or a friend or if you're in, you know, a, just a nursing home with someone who's elderly, I mean, you've got to think about life is partly being there, taking the steps, just like Jesus did, hands and feet, you know, interacting intimately with others.
2: Yeah, you can't always phone it in. Um, you say that one of the primary reasons for writing this book was to talk about enduring friendships. And again, that's something that few of us enjoy or fewer of us enjoy than perhaps previous generations. What, is that to, what does that look like, an enduring friendship? Well, it can be two things. Some people think enduring means time. Like you have to be, you know, friends for 30
4: or 40 years. And I actually have a friend that we've been friends for almost 50 years because we met as children. So we've done life together. So that's one type of of an enduring friendship. Another is you can be newly good friends with somebody, maybe six months, a year, but if let's say you have cancer and they walk through that with you. And they're with you and they're at the hospital with you and when you get your mastectomy, they're with you and they're bringing you gifts and they're encouraging you and they're sharing tears and whatever. You know, that is an enduring friendship because it's not somebody who just dips in and out of your life to have a little bit of fun, check in on you maybe every few months. It's somebody who goes through your sorrows and your challenges with you. That's enduring. And that's what we all need in our life are a few good enduring friendships.
2: Now, what's your definition of a biblical friendship? And is there such a thing as a biblical friendship? Well, I like to
4: refer people to
2: Galatians 5, where it's all about the fruits of the
4: Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and the like. And to 1 Corinthians 13, which tells us what real love looks like. You know, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's just not proud, not self-seeking. You look through and you study the attributes of these character qualities and these gifts, and you ask yourself, Am I that person? Am I that friend to somebody else? Because we always have to begin with ourselves. We look in at, you know, write down, you know, a list of these things and say, hey, I need to work on this, 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 and this. But since we're always growing in grace, we're always progressively being sanctified. We all are going to be working on our character for the rest of our lives, no doubt. However, you look at your friendships and you say, am I doing and exhibiting these qualities of unconditional love toward my friends? Am I exhibiting fruits of the spirit toward my friends? And vice versa, are they doing and building into my life in similar ways? Are my relationships iron sharpening iron? Meaning there's going to be times when I need a little reproof from a good friend who says, hey, I don't like that attitude I'm seeing in you, or are you really sure you want to make that decision? Because they love me and they care about me, they can speak freely into my life and I can speak freely into
2: theirs. What you're describing is an intentional effort to develop relationships, to deepen them to the point where that kind of an exchange is even possible.
4: Absolutely. And you know what? You can't jump into a new friendship and expect to be there in a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, rarely. But you know what? You earn the right by being a faithful friend. You start with a new friend by you know sharing life together in small ways, sharing kindnesses listening well and, and really hearing what that other person is trying to say or listening and hearing what they're not saying and queuing in in a sensitive way about what their needs are, you know, trying to see what they celebrate in life and what is their goal. And, you know, you can't have a biblical friendship unless you're both headed in the same direction, meaning everything you do is, you know, to honor the Lord and to glorify Jesus Christ. It has to be. That's your overarching you know, goal in your life, you know, how that's going to look and play out is different for everybody. But you have to have friends who are on the same path as you. And their their road might look different. But boy, they every decision they make, every choice they make is going to be God-honoring.
2: No, I think most of us have been burned or perhaps burned out by a friendship. And you offer some cautions about certain kinds of friendships. Let's talk about what these are so that we can avoid putting ourselves in a position where we simply give up on the prospect of really having a, a deep and abiding friendship?
4: Well, you know, I always start with a quote that Paul Tripp said many years ago. And he, he told his listeners, hey, people will tell you who they are if you watch them. And he said, you just watch people, and you watch how they treat their spouse and their children. You watch how they treat their employees, their friends, their extended family, their neighbors, whoever it is they're around. Watch them over time, and their character will reveal itself because people can't stay hidden for very long. And he said, if you're seeing in other people, or there's people that maybe you want to like interact with, and you're trying to decide, hey, maybe that was a good friend or a good friendship, a good relationship. If they are mistreating others, if they're disloyal, if they're gossipers, if they're backbiting type of people, realize that they will eventually treat you that way. And he said, hey, we all want to pretend that If we carefully tread, you know, gently around a prickly person, they won't eventually get angry with us. He said they will. You are not the exception to the rule. Watch how people treat others, and that's how they're going to treat you. So that's one thing I try to do is just be sensitively aware of how things are handled around me when I see new people come into my life. And also you have to watch people and see what kind of choices they're making. I mean, if you become friends with a new friend, let's say Jane, And this first time you get together with her, all she's doing is talking about how everyone has mistreated her. A red light should be going off in your head because, you know, she already hardly knows you and she's complaining about the people who are in her life. So, you know, you've got to look at people and hear what they're saying, look for their motivations. You know, you can gently prod in if you can, but, you know, there's reasons why to not be friends with certain people because you've watched them mistreat others.
2: Um, you write about the fact that friendships are both influencing and influenced and the uh, the danger, if you will, of uh, a friendship that's lopsided in one direction or another. First of all, what do you mean by influencing and influenced and what happens if there's an imbalance uh, to what should be a healthy, developing friendship? Well, I
4: always like to think of like a seesaw. When you're on a seesaw and you watch children, they should be going up and down and up and down, not one slamming into the ground and the other one being thrown off. So kind of think of it that way. There's a balance. You know, today I might be doing really well and being feeling strong and things are going the right way and I'm able to really minister to my friend who's struggling You know, three weeks from now, it's going to change. It's the opposite. I might be really struggling with an issue, and my friend has to come along and encourage me and keep redirecting me back to biblical principles and biblical responses because I need it. So a friendship means you are going to be influencing those around you. They're going to be influencing you. And remember, we become most like the people we surround ourselves with, which is another Wonderful thing to think about when you enter into any new relationship, you look at the people that you've chosen as your friends and you say, not in a critical way, but you go, okay, do I like what I see here? Are these good attributes? Do they have good qualities? Are they growing? Are they walking in the right direction toward the Lord instead of away from him? I mean, God has given us a mind to think through these things, not to just be like, oh, I need to love everybody. Yes, we need to love everybody, but not everybody needs to be an intimate friend with us.
2: Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking today with Michelle Howe. Her book is titled Navigating the Friendship Maze, The Search for Authentic Friendship. They will serve you well when they are authentic and genuine. 47 minutes after 4 o'clock. We will be back momentarily.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey,
2: we're back 51 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Michelle Howell, she is the author of oh more than 18 books. She's also published over 2,500 articles and reviews on parenting, women's issues, and the empty nest. Her latest book is Navigating the Friendship Maze, the search for authentic Friendship, a great book to help us really think through who are we associating with and how are we benefiting one another. You write that people will reveal their truest character over time. It's important to know because we may have an impression in the beginning, but learn over time uh, the true character and personality of someone to determine if we are compatible. Um, As you're learning uh, to know someone, is there ever a time, is it ever appropriate to discover that maybe this is not a friendship uh, worth continuing? And how do you reverse course?
4: Yeah, there is. And it hopefully doesn't happen to too many people too often in, in their lives. But every once in a while, you're going you're gonna to be in a relationship with someone. And over time, you know, you might start getting some, you know, warning signals in your head. Like every time you're with this person, you feel bad when you leave them inside. I mean, internally, emotionally, and you feel shamed or depressed or discouraged or defeated. Or, you know, they kill your dreams and they, they just try to just disgruntle anything you're trying to do. And, you know, they're not you know, adding in and adding on to your life in a positive way. In fact, they're detracting from everything that you're trying to do. And, uh, you know, those are just warning signs that, you know, perhaps your friend isn't emotionally mature enough to applaud you when you succeed in life or to stand behind you when you try to do something new in ministry or vocationally. You know, you have to ask yourself, wow, why do I always feel this way after I leave this person's company? You know, just take note of it, pray about it, think about it. You know, and then there's other cases that are a little bit more extreme where, you know, you might have a friend who's really making some choices that are morally against what you believe is right. And you might, you know, try to talk them through it, try to find out why they're doing what they're doing. But, you know, there's probably a few hills we're all willing to die on. And if there's some things that become so extreme that are so troubling to you and you, you've talked to your friend about it and they're not budging and they see no issue – you know, you might just have to part ways, and you don't always have to have a conversation. Sometimes you need to, and sometimes you just, friendships die a slow death because you don't have anything in common anymore. People do change, and not everybody is in your life for every season, for every year, you know, throughout your, your adulthood. You know, it's sometimes just time, it's location, it's whatever, or new people come into either one of your lives, and let's face it, we only have so many hours in a day, and you can only have so many friends that you can build into you know, their lives.
2: Well, how can you, uh, we, we've talked a lot about how to determine if someone is a, a healthy prospect for a friendship, but how can we consistently add to the goodness of friendships by virtue of how we approach be, being a friend to someone else?
4: You know what, that's a great question. And I think we have to go back to what I determined earlier and said, like Galatians 5 and First Corinthians, we have to look at ourselves and say, am I the kind of friend I want to have? And what does that look like? Well, I want a friend who's loyal and kind, but who'll tell me the truth when I need to hear it. I want a friend who, who isn't selfish, so I want to be unselfish. So I want to be looking into my friends' lives and saying, how can I meet their needs? How can I bless them this week? Do I have resources that I can use to help their life be a little bit easier? You know, are they going through something tough? Can I take them out to dinner? Can I have them over for dinner? You know, you got to look at each friend. You know, make a list at your, your gal friends and say, This person's going through this, this one's going through that, you know, and try to tailor make according to what they love and like most, something that will bless their hearts and encourage them. And I, if you start looking in an other centered way, instead of a selfish way, you'll find that as you give into build into their lives, that often they reciprocate in ways that bless you and your friendship is just all the richer.
2: You write that every woman needs a mentor friend. What does that look like? First of all, what is it and what does that look like?
4: I think every woman needs a friend who's a little bit older. And maybe it's a year older, it could be 10 years, 15 years older. Someone who has walked where you have not walked yet. Someone who can mentor you through the seasons you haven't yet endured and experienced. Someone you can look at and you respect who they are and the choices that they've made. And you go, hey, I haven't been there yet. And they really pick their brain and say, if you were in my situation, what would you do? What did you do? Would you have changed it? Did you make a mistake that you can help me avoid? You know, and they counsel you. They kind of just give you life experience and, and just wisdom them to look at perspectives that maybe you don't have. That's the mentor friend who's a little bit farther along. And then we need peer friendships, people we look at, and you can kind of just look right in their eyes, you're going through the same thing. You just laugh. You know, you go, you know, roll your eyes. You're like, you really get each other because you're both enduring the same types of challenges and you help each other through it. You help each other hang on and see the bright side. And then we all need someone that we can build into, someone who hasn't gone what we've gone through, and usually these are younger people. Maybe they're single, maybe young moms, maybe, you know, newly divorced and hurting, and we can help them and say, hey, I was there 15 years ago. You're going to make it. This is why what you're doing is important. Let me show you what I did to help me, you know, help myself cope through it. And maybe you can help them with your resources. So you've got somebody ahead of you, somebody right where you're at, and then somebody who's kind of just a little bit backwards in your, you know, behind where you were some years ago.
2: What are some of the bigger mistakes that we make in friendships? I think we rush in too fast
4: with some friendships. We just too casually look at somebody and go, oh, wow, doing exactly what I want to do, you know, in my career, I think we'd be great friends. Or we say, oh, they have exactly the kind of home life I want, and I, I think we'd be great friends. I think we need to be careful because, again, you always have to remember the people you surround yourself with, you become like them. So you have to take time and be patient. You know, I know that we'll say, oh, I'm lonely, I need more friends. But, you know, even people with a lot of great friendships, people who are married, have kids at home are lonely being lonely is not something you can cure overnight and even people with the richest most intimately healthy relationships are lonely at times and that is something only the lord can fill in us it's not something another friend is going to make all better
2: Now, for those who are listening today and don't have a good network of friends, what advice can you offer as they purpose to pursue the kind of healthy, genuine, authentic friendship that you've been talking about?
4: Well, first, let's always look at ourselves and say, let's try to become the friend we want to make and have. First, you look at yourself. Mm. Be friendly. Invite people over. Invite people out. You know, serve them. And, And that leads right into you often will meet people that you'll click with In service opportunities, whether it's in your church or your community, it could be a hobby. It could be anywhere, anywhere where you are passionate about. You will often find like-minded people doing the same thing, and many times great friendships just grow and blossom out of those environments. So look around where you're already active in your community and just say, okay, who, who are these maybe potential new friends here? And if you're new in a city, You know, you find a good church, you go to the pastor, you go to the women's leader and you say, I'm looking for friendships. What do you have in this church or what's in the community? Help me. People are always ready to point you in the right direction. But again, you have to be proactive in seeking friendships. I think we often think that God will just drop people right in our lives. Well, maybe once in a while he'll do that, but he gives us, you know, the will to
2: go out and, and do our part and then he does his part. Amen. Well, the book once again is titled Navigating the Friendship Maze, The Search for Authentic Friendship. Great direction for thinking about what a healthy uh, friendship looks like, how we can become that kind of friend and seek others uh, who are the same. Michelle Howe, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. I
4: really appreciate
2: it. Again, Navigating the Friendship Maze. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. In the second hour, we're going to take a look at Uh, The president's press conference and meeting with uh, Putin last week, as well as an update on the petition to try to put the question of whether or not Oregonians can decide they want to fund abortion, excuse me, abortion in the state. All of that when we return.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part today by... Zero res. Later this hour, for those of you joining us in the second hour, we're going to give you an opportunity to hear a conversation I had earlier in the day with Fred Lucas. He's the White House correspondent for the Daily Signal and co host of the Right Side of History podcast. We're going to talk about a headline of an article he uh, published earlier today Trump Not Clear on Whether He Believes Putin or U.S. Intelligence on Election Meddling. Now, the article was published in written before the uh, press conference earlier today in which the president attempted to clarify what he actually meant. He said it was a double negative and he simply misspoke. Now that was at least one element of uh, the controversial uh, press conference with uh, President Vladimir Putin. But nonetheless, we'll find out whether or not uh, Mr. Lucas is convinced and... Uh, what we can uh, might make of uh, that exchange between the U.S. president and Vladimir Putin. So that's coming up later this hour. Also, a tribute to Vacation Bible School. I know lots of people have been involved all throughout the community and preparing for, and perhaps you've already under uh, you're underway with your Vacation Bible School. Just wanted to pay a quick tribute to those of you who commit to um, to serving in that capacity, as well as those who serve in um, Christian camps throughout the summer months. Well, I received an email before the program began today, and it was pretty exciting. It was from Jeff Jimerson, who is the um, uh, the executive director. I'm not sure he would describe himself in that way, but he has provided leadership for Oregon Life United. But it represents uh, 10,000 volunteers who had one mission. And uh, the um, uh, the email that I received uh, simply said this, and there's a picture of a group of people. There are probably 25 of them. Pictured above are some of the more than 10 thousand volunteer petition circulators who gathered signatures for our petition to stop taxpayer-funded abortion. Thanks to the dedication of an amazing statewide team, we were able to deliver a total of 141,200 signatures to the state elections office earlier this month. Uh, He goes on to say, I just learned that officials will begin verifying our signatures today. And the uh, process is expected to take about two weeks. If you're interested in observing the signature verification, please hit reply. And this was from the email uh, to let uh, to let him know. And you can go to uh, OregonLifeUnited.org if you're uh, interested. Uh, shifts are four hours long and will take place in Salem. We currently need a few more detail-oriented people to participate. And essentially what he's talking about are people who are overseeing the process of verifying the signatures because sometimes the Secretary of State's office can be very aggressive in throwing out signatures and if they are challenged by those observers you might in fact discover that no, that is a valid signature and you need as many valid as uh, as possible. He goes on to write in the email, I want you to know our team is busy at work behind the scenes preparing for the Vote Yes campaign this fall. Would you consider making a contribution? Well, uh, uh, collecting signatures, gathering signatures, turning in the petitions and sufficient numbers to um, make it onto the ballot is only the first and perhaps the easier step of this process. Uh, the next step, of course, is the campaign that encourages Oregonians to vote yes on ending state funding of abortion. It doesn't impact, uh, although I wish it it would, it doesn't impact one's access to uh, abortion. But it does say the taxpayers, many of whom disagree with underwriting abortion in the state of Oregon will not be required to do so. So um, we're going to keep you posted. uh, As uh, Jeff Jimerson said, again, the director of Oregon uh, Life United, it's going to take a couple of weeks for this process, and they do have uh, signature verifiers uh, standing by to observe uh, in four-hour shifts in Salem uh, the process of evaluating those signatures to make sure that it's done uh, fairly and it's not uncommon for that to be the case it's not just on this issue but uh, it's common to have people who uh, have submitted the petition to stand by and observe the process of verifying or otherwise rejecting signatures That have been collected. So you can check out uh, more on that at Oregon Life United. It's a nonpartisan, non-denominational political action committee with a simple mission to to, uh, pass the state's first ever law to protect women and babies from abortion. And in this case, uh, to end the state funding of abortion. He writes, P.S., in a few days, I will be inviting you and thousands of uh, other supporters to participate in a very important campaign planning survey and if you are interested in getting on the mailing address or learning more about that, again, OregonLifeUnited.org is the, uh, the web address. But again, congratulations to the 10,000 volunteers and uh, apparently 141,200 signatories uh, 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 who have signed the petition and whose signatures are now being reviewed by the secretary um, elections uh, office. So that's a, a good thing to know. Oh, let's see. Do I want to go there at this time? Hmm. One of the questions that's being raised following the uh, controversy surrounding the president's summit, I'm not sure you could really call it that, was a two-hour conversation followed by a press conference. But nonetheless, many are asking what happens next. It's being characterized as a botched summit, at least the public portion of it, in which the president of the United States and uh, Vladimir Putin spoke to Uh, The press, uh, but those who are observing and looking beyond that event say that Trump's policies are still pressuring Russia, and we should look to that as well. On Monday, as you know, the president uh, managed to make a bad situation. Uh, a bit more challenging in a press conference held after his summit meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. He strongly implied he agreed with Putin's assessment, although he didn't say that. He said it was compelling. He didn't say he agreed with it. But he did not defend U.S. intelligence sources. He has since, uh, in a press re- uh, press conference earlier today, um, said that it, he simply misspoke. And what he intended to say was that there was um, no reason to believe that Russia was not uh, involved in uh, trying to influence the U.S. elections. Anyway, the optics going into the summit were already uh, fairly unfortunate. The U.S. foreign policy establishment, along with national security and armchair quarterbacks, had been waiting. Uh, with bated breath, whatever that means, to see what would happen uh, when the two men met behind closed doors. Well, the meeting was announced a couple of weeks ago to the surprise and feigned horror of many. For some, his decision to meet with Putin was further evidence of collusion between the two countries, although if he had declined meeting with him, they still would have seen that as evidence of collusion since that is an assumption that uh, it doesn't require evidence, um, is held by many. Um, Well, the question is, at this uh, point, uh, is the president's are the president's policies still pressuring Russia and uh in a piece from the federalist the point was made that Um, uh, not unlike Trump's summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, the meeting with Putin validates a regime that's violated the borders of other sovereign nations, is propping up the Assad regime's bloody war in Syria, is constantly provoking its neighbors, has attempted to meddle in America's elections. Russia is an adversary to the United States, plain and simple, and Trump um, uh, rolled over uh, in front of the entire world. That's how it's being interpreted. But is this proof that Trump is in Putin's pocket? Well, that he's beholden to Russia, that the United States has been utterly infiltrated by a foreign country. Although that's what the uh, hysterical say, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi tweeted on Monday that she continually wonders what Russians have on Trump writing that it's the only thing that explains Trump's behavior and his refusal to stand up to Putin. Well, again, in the article by The Federalist, they point out that there is a far simpler explanation, and you can decide whether or not you accept this as an explanation. Trump was more concerned with sticking it to his domestic opponents than being tough with Putin. He's trolling the left in America, but he's reckless doing it on the international stage. He's allowed his own ego and his fight with the mainstream media and the left over the Russia collusion narrative to dictate how he engages the leaders of an adversarial foreign uh, country. Trump might be a pawn of Putin, but not in the way that the media likes to portray. He is a pawn because Putin has a good read on Trump and the domestic climate in America. He knows just which buttons to press and how to play on Trump's weaknesses. Again, quoting from The Federalist, although Trump's incredible statements at the press conference were irresponsible, naive, and even dangerous, they do not reflect current U.S. policy toward Russia, and that's a very big thing. So, what he said is one thing, U.S policy as it's being carried out, they argue, is another. Consider what has actually happened since Trump took office. Rather, He has suggested sanctioning um, uh, Russia and the Justice Department has indicted Russians for their various nefarious actions, including meddling with the election. The latest indictment came on Friday when the Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein announced the indictments. That indictment follows a separate but related indictment of 13 Russians and three Russian entities earlier this year. Let's not forget that. Back in February, U.S. commandos killed as many as 300 Russian mercenaries in Syria where the uh, Trump administration has repeatedly pushed back against Russia's military adventurism. The same day as the Trump-Putin summit, two separate events took place. First, the Justice Department charged a Russian woman with being a foreign agent who was uh, trying to arrange secret meetings between Trump and Putin. Second, U.S. Marines were training with their Ukrainian counterparts in military drills clearly aimed at preparing Ukraine for further conflict with Russia. The Trump administration has also done something that the Obama administration refused to do. It authorized the sale of lethal arms to Ukraine, including anti-tank missiles, to help the country in its fight against separatists. That is to say, Russian forces in the ongoing war in eastern Ukraine. The Trump administration has more or less adopted the correct policy toward Russia. The policy, not rhetoric necessarily. Moreover, Trump does not wield dictatorial authority. He can't unilaterally, uh, unilaterally pop up or protect Russia, even if he wanted to. He's restrained in this matter, as all presidents ought to be. And so far, he's pursued rather punitive policies toward Moscow, his behavior in front of the cameras notwithstanding. To be sure, Trump's statements at the summit were startlingly reckless. They hurt America's position in the world and weakened it in front of the unflappable Putin. But amid all of the chaos and concern, it's important to remember that for pushing back against Moscow, actions speak louder louder. Than words, perhaps that's some consolation for those who are concerned about the uh, the impact of what happened during that press conference. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. Eighteen minutes after five o'clock is the time you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back 23 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Republican House members could be days away from the release of articles of impeachment against Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. That's according to news sources. They said that there could be two separate resolutions to impeach Rosenstein, but there is hope among some members of Congress to vote on the issue prior to the House's August recess. The Deputy Attorney General oversees special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into possible collusion between the 2016 Trump campaign and Russia. Politico reported last week that Representatives Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan, uh, both members of the House Freedom Caucus, are leading that effort. Political story on the possible impeachment to filing against Uh, Rosenstein came on this same day that Rosenstein announced Mueller's 12 indictments against Russian military intelligence officials on charges linked to the 2016 presidential election. Well, speculation that President Trump might fire Rosenstein increased in April after FBI agents conducted raids at the office and home of Michael Cohen, the president's former personal attorney, according to The Hill the 29-page indictment lays out how months before Americans went to the polls, Russia's scheme to break into key Democratic email accounts, including those belonging to Clinton campaign chairman John Podesta and Democratic National Committee and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. Stolen uh, emails, many politically uh, damaged, damaging for Clinton, appeared on WikiLeaks in the campaign's final stretch. Well, Rosenstein claims uh, for Uh, called rather for a unified approach to countering foreign meddling. When we confront foreign interference in American elections, it's important for us to avoid thinking politically as Republicans or Democrats and instead to think patriotically as Americans. He said, our response must not depend on who was victimized. Well, um, it's not likely that these articles of impeachment, uh, if in fact they are brought forward, will succeed. But nonetheless, that is expected in the near term. And a new report sheds light on how Israel's Mossad Intelligence Agency acquired secret documents pertaining to Iran's nuclear program. It reveals Mossad agents monitored a Tehran warehouse containing the nuclear documents for a year before launching a previously disclosed raid in January. The raid yielded a massive haul of intelligence, about 50,000 pages and 163 compact discs. According to the New York Post, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced in April that the documents proved Iran's had been holding on to information from its ostensibly defunct nuclear research program, signaling its aspiration to resume its research. Mossad agents had just over six weeks to infiltrate the warehouse, cut through dozens of safes, extract the documents, and exit the city, according to officials who relied... Uh, relayed details, rather, of the raid to the New York Times. Several papers shown to reporters contained clear evidence that Iran had worked in the past to make atomic weapons. The papers show these guys were working on nuclear bombs, said one former inspector for International Atomic Energy Agency. Iran claims the documents are fraudulent, but American and British intelligence officials say the intelligence is genuine. Iranian officials limited work on the country's nuclear program in 2003, but documents reveal senior scientists made plans to continue some research in secret. The work would be divided in two covert, secret structure and goals, and overt, one Iranian scientist wrote in a memo. Well, the documents have heightened Israel's distrust of Iran's intentions and the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which Iran, the U.S., China, France, Russia, and the United Kingdom, as well as Germany and the European Union agreed to in 2015. It explains why the nuclear deal to us is worse than nothing because it leaves key parts of the nuclear program unaddressed, said one Israeli official. It doesn't block Iran's path to the bomb. It paves Iran's path to the bomb. President Trump pulled the United States from the Iran nuclear deal in May, calling it defective at its core. Netanyahu supported Trump's decision, deeming it a bold decision today to reject the disastrous nuclear deal with the terrorist regime in Tehran. And here at home, the leader of Portland's police union has slammed the mayor of Portland for his response to the homelessness crisis, claiming Oregon's largest city has become a cesspool. Officer Daryl Turner, president of the Portland Police Association and a police officer for 27 years, posted a lengthy statement on Facebook on Monday, where he listed the various issues the city is facing, ranging from aggressive panhandlers and, and uh, garbage-filled RVs to used needles and human feces blocking entrances to businesses. Our city has become a cesspool," he wrote on Facebook. "Livability that once made Portland a unique and vibrant city is now replaced with human feces in business doorways and our parks." And on our streets. Aggressive panhandlers block the sidewalks, storefronts, landmarks like Pioneer Square, discouraging people from enjoying our city. Garbage-filled RVs and vehicles are strewn throughout our neighborhoods. Used needles, drug paraphernalia, and trash are common sites lining the streets and sidewalks of the downtown core area. Under our bridges and freeways, overpasses, that's not what our families, business owners, and tourists deserve, he went on to say. He added that Major, or rather Mayor Ted Wheelers had... Uh, uh, implemented failed policies and that he had thrown Portland police officers under the bus. Well, Turner's comments came after Wheeler said in an interview with the Oregonian that he wanted to review arrest data after an analysis by the newspaper found that more than half of the arrests that police made in Portland last year were of homeless people. The review by the paper found that 52% of arrests made by Portland police involved a homeless individual, while homeless people only represent 3% of the city's total population. The mayor concluded that the police must be doing something wrong well the real problem here is um, uh, he went on to say um, uh, Wheeler told the editorial board the real problem here is is there some sort of profiling or implicit bias Uh, the mayor told the editorial board upon learning of the statistics from my perspective that's a crux of the situation the police should be focused on policing criminal activity and that's sort of the beginning the middle and the end of it for me well, the Portland Police Chief Danielle Outlaw later called for the Independent Police Review to launch an investigation to determine whether the homeless are being unfairly targeted. I requested IPR to review the data to assist me in determining if there were any PPB um, Portland Police Bureau systems or policies that lead to unintended consequences or misalignment with the Bureau's mission, vision and values. Outlaw said in a statement, my offices do an amazing job with the tools they are given and are often expected to be uh, Expected by some to solve societal problems outside of the scope of their duties and or the realm of influence. I've been a police officer for 27 years. I've seen it gone uh, it gone downhill. The city's become a cesspool. The Portland Police Association president Daryl Turner has said. But Turner said Monday, any allegations of targeting the homeless population are baseless and that officers are unable to spend the time needed to connect homeless individuals to necessary services. A lot of the, the victims of these uh, crimes are homeless, too. So if we are not investigating these crimes, if we're not responding to these crimes, then we're not responding to the needs of the homeless, he said. So you're, well, darned if you do and darned if you don't. So the Portland Police Bureau has begun an investigation, an internal investigation. The mayor, on the other hand, has suggested that um, the stats alone prove that the Portland Police Bureau um, has a problem. And I think for those of us who live with the problem that the mayor himself is uh, responsible for, would have to argue that uh, much of the blame rests on the desk of the mayor of the city of Portland. 31 minutes after five o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with Fred Lucas. Is the president clear on whether he believes Putin or U.S. intelligence on election meddling?
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, months before children fill your church for vacation Bible school, preparation begins. You choose from the dozens of VBS themed pro, um, uh, Produced by various curriculum providers, you purchase items, you decorate the church, you recruit, you train volunteers, you invite families, then the big week arrives, your church fills with children, they're singing, they're eating snacks, they're making crafts, they're learning about scripture, kids have fun, the gospel is shared, and then the week comes to an end, and many of the children walk out of the doors, they disappear until next year's VBS, and for too many churches, that scenario plays out year after year, and may wonder what difference did it make after all? Well, the origins of Vacation Bible School can be traced back to Hopedale, Illinois in 1894. A Sunday school teacher, D.T. Miles, who also was a public school teacher, felt she had limited time uh, and was constrained in teaching the Bible to children. So, she started a daily Bible school to teach children during the summer. The first Bible school enrolled 40 students and lasted four weeks. A local school was used for classes while an adjoining park was used for recess. In 1898, Virginia, sent Claire Hawes, often identified as Mrs. Walker Islet Hawes, director of the children's department at Epiphany Baptist Church in New York City, started an everyday Bible school for neighborhood children during the summer at a rented beer parlor in New York's East Side. There is a bronze plaque honoring her efforts located in her hometown, uh, town rather of Charlottesville, Virginia, in the foyer of First Baptist Church. Dr. Robert of the Baptist Mission Society, became aware of Hawes' summer program and recommended it to other Baptist churches. Beauvais established a handful of summer schools, which were taught by students at the Union Theological Seminary. During one summer, 1,000 students were enrolled in five different schools. In 1922, he founded the World Association of Daily Vacation Bible School. One year later, Standard Publishing produced the very first printed VBS curriculum. Enough material was provided for a five-week course for three age levels, kindergarten, primary, and junior. And while not under the title of Vacation Bible School, Dr. Dr. Abraham Latham of the Third Presbyterian Church in Chester, Pennsylvania, initiated a five-week, four-hour-per-day summer Bible school in 1912, which at its peak had 650 to 700 students. Well, this has been claimed to be the world's first summer Bible school. Well, today, many churches run their own vacation Bible school programs without being under the umbrella of a national organization. Some churches opt to use uh, themed curriculum programs like Under the Sea or something like that from their respective denominations or independent publishing houses that provide easy preparation and include marketing tools. There are lots of programs lots of kids attend. Some will continue to attend the church. Others will simply disappear back into their neighborhoods, but they will have been exposed to the gospel. I wanted to take a few moments to commend those who have worked tirelessly to provide and produce vacation Bible school in their church, in their neighborhood, perhaps uh, in their home for young people to give them an opportunity to hear the gospel, many of them for the first time, maybe the second time. And there's been a year in between that first presentation and the uh, and the current. I also want to commend those um, people who are committed to camps, uh, Christian camps that take place throughout the summer. There are high school students and uh, college students who act as uh, counselors and in other capacities. There are adults who have committed themselves to serving in this capacity. Lots of men and women consuming much of their summer preparing for and then serving in vacation Bible school or camps throughout uh, the Pacific Northwest and beyond. Just wanted to say. Uh, how much I appreciate, and I know many of us appreciate the commitment and the sacrifice that you make in order that the gospel might be presented to young people in a way that they are likely to hear. Now, I mentioned just before the break that I came to faith in Christ at vacation bible school it wasn 't the church that I attended; I grew up in a Christian household. My parents were serious believers, and they lived out their faith at home as well as when they were in the church setting. There was a consistency there, but i don 't recall being given the specific opportunity to respond to the gospel. In the church I attended in Sunday school prior to being invited by a neighbor who recently passed away, by the way, uh, to attend Vacation Bible School. it sounded like a lot of fun, a bunch of kids getting together to talk about God's Word. And of course, it's fun. You focus on the same stories that we'd studied and read and uh, learned about in Sunday school. So I went. But I remember at that occasion being given the opportunity toward the end of the week to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I remember the classroom. I remember what it looked like. I remember what the chairs were like in that Uh, that small room, and I remember lifting my little hand and responding to the invitation to receive Christ, to acknowledge my need for a Savior, even as a little girl, uh, and to come before him confessing my sins. And while from my vantage point as an adult, I think, what sins? I recognized that I, uh, I had a sin nature and I needed a savior and that Jesus had graciously made provision for me. And I came to faith in him. And that relationship began on that day in vacation Bible school. The truth is some kids will come. You may never see them again. Some kids may end up going to a different church. They may move out of the neighborhood But the truth is, God's word will not return void. Those young people are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're experiencing the love of Christ. And those of you who serve in vacation Bible school and camps uh, in your community are presenting in such a compelling way uh, to these young people um, what the scriptures have to say. So kudos to you. Uh, Certainly my congratulations is meaningless compared to the utterance that we all long to hear one day. Uh, well done, good and faithful servant. But I just want you to know that those of us who are looking on, we recognize the sacrifices that you're uh, you're making. And I can stand as one uh, whose life was changed forever because of Vacation Bible School. So thank you. Tomorrow on the program, uh, we're going to be joined by Holt International. And we're going to have a radiothon that gives you an opportunity to learn about one aspect of their work. I know Holt has been around in, the state of Oregon, for many, many years. And those of us in the Portland metro area and Southwest Washington are probably familiar with Holt International. But what you may not be familiar with is their work in Mongolia, and in particular, a a village in which children live out their existence on a rather large and ominous garbage heap, looking for whatever they can to survive. Now, some of these children are Without parents, others are are um, in households, but their parents are are not um, are not present uh, in a variety of ways. They may be physically present but not parenting uh, and we 're going to talk about a school that they have established in this Mongolian village. That gives these young people an opportunity to learn, which means their future will be much brighter because they have the ability to read and write and have had something of an education. But also give them access to some of the things they need, like shoes and a coat um, and a meal. At least one meal a day is guaranteed for these children. Now, most of us don't know much about Mongolia. We maybe haven't thought a lot about it, but we're going to learn about the uh, struggles of um, these kids in Mongolia and in particular um, growing up in garbage. We're going to talk about what kind of garbage um, we're talking about and how these um, these children live at the foot of a very large hill of trash uh, in order to survive. So that's coming up tomorrow on the program, and I hope you'll plan to listen. It's another opportunity for us uh, to learn what God is doing. Also, we have confirmed an interview for Thursday. We'll talk with Michael Anthony. The book is A Call to Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance. And fear. I want to thank James Blind for engineering today's program and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at grice show and like us on Facebook.